But I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 6. 1 Kings 6, as we do continue on in the Word of God in the book of 1 Kings. And today we're going to be discussing the building of the temple. Now, you will know that um, this is uh, the temple that we're speaking of is Solomon's temple. Uh, this was the, the first of the large buildings uh, where uh, God was to be worshipped in the midst of his people in the capital in Jerusalem that was built. There were three in total. The first building was built by uh, Solomon and then destroyed by the Babylonians when they sacked the city in 586. The second one was built by the exiles who had come back. Uh, and in particular, uh, we remember that... Um, Zerubbabel was used, uh, that, that prince, in building the foundations of the temple. Ezra then encouraged the people, the uh, prophets Haggai and Zechariah, uh, stirred up the people to see the need for the temple to be restored. And that was a second temple, not as glorious as the first. And then the third temple was built by Herod, and it had just reached completion when it was actually destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Uh, all of them were important, and all of them pointed forward to the coming of the true temple, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, I want to recommend to you a book in, uh, uh, that will help you to understand the importance of the temple, the uh, cycle of sacrifices that went on at it, the calendar and uh, the various portions of it. It concentrates on the third temple, Herod's temple, because that's the one that's mentioned throughout the New Testament. Uh, the author is Alfred Edersheim. Edersheim was a, a Viennese Jew who was actually evangelized by Scots Presbyterians who were on their way to Israel. They wanted to bring the gospel to Palestinian Jews, but uh, they uh, evangelized Jewish communities in Hungary and Austria. And uh, along the way, as they were headed out to Palestine, Edersheim was one of the men who was converted. And he became a wonderful historian of uh, the Jewish people. Uh, and in particular, making them known uh, to his fellow Christians and uh, explaining uh, the background of the New Testament in particular. This was one of his books. I would recommend picking it up. You can get it from uh, Amazon, but don't buy it from Amazon. Buy it from, unless you need to get it on Kindle. You can get it on Kindle. Uh, buy it from cvbbs.com. That's a uh, Christian bookseller run by a Reformed Baptist family that's been associated with the Banner of Truth for many years. You can get it there at a discount, and I would recommend them very highly. But um, do, uh, do pick it up. Do read it. Uh, it is fascinating, and you will understand the background of the New Testament much, much better once you have that in mind. Well, in the meantime, let's now turn our attention to the Word of God rather than simply explanations of the Word of God. And let's uh, together... Uh, seek the face of the Lord before we read his word so that we might understand it better. God, our gracious Father, we ask now, Lord, that you would be the light of our minds. Drive away distractions. We know, Lord, that the preaching of the word is a time of warfare. It's a time, O oh Lord, when the world, the flesh, and the devil are seeking to rob us of any blessing. They want the seed to fall on hard and rocky soil, to be eaten by birds, snatched away immediately. Uh, and for us to get nothing out of it, Lord. We pray that that would not be the case, though. We pray, Lord, that you would illuminate us inwardly, that you would unplug our ears, that you would fill our minds with a desire to learn about what it was you were doing. And we pray particularly that as we read about the, uh, the temple, that you would help us to understand. And we pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. One technical note that may help you to understand the text as I read it, incidentally, a cubit 
is 18 inches. Uh, it was the space from the tip of your middle finger to your elbow. Uh, ancient workmen didn't always have rulers uh, with them, but they generally carried their arms wherever they went. So that was the uh, way that they determined the, uh, the rough length of something. So uh, remember, 18 inches is a cubit. If you've got a New Living Translation, this is the only time ever that that translation is helpful because it moves it all into feet. Um, so my apologies for any of you who are real aficionados of the NLT. You know who you are. Anyway, First uh, Kings 6. This is the word of the Lord. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now the house which Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20, and its height 30 cubits. The vestibule in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits from the front of the house, and he made for the house windows with beveled frames. Against the wall of the temple, he built ch chambers all around, against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. Thus, he made side chambers all around it. The lowest chamber was five cubits wide, the middle was six cubits wide, and the third was seven cubits wide. For he made narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams would not be fastened into the walls of the temple. And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry, so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. The doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple. They went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. So he built the temple and finished it, and he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar, and he built side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high. They were attached to the temple with cedar beams. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and finished it. And he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards. From the floor of the temple to the ceiling, he paneled the inside with wood. And he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. Then he built the 20-cubit room at the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling with cedar boards. He built it inside as the inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. And in front of it, the temple sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar carved with ornamental buds and open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone to be seen. And he prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the ark of the covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. The whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. Also, he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. Inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. One wing of the cherubim was five cubits, and the other wing of the cherubim five cubits, ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. 
and the other cherub was ten cubits. Both cherubim were of the same size and shape. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was the other cherub. Then he set the cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of the one touched one wall, and the wing of the other cherubim touched the other wall. And their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. Also, he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Then he carved the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and outer sanctuaries, with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were one-fifth of the wall. The two doors were of olive wood, and he carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold. And he spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So for the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall. And the two doors were of cypress wood. Two panels comprised one folding door, and two panels comprised the other folding door. Then he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them and overlaid them with gold applied evenly on the carved work. And he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, the building that you've just heard described, uh, one until one really thinks about the measurements, you, you get this idea of it's a massive edifice. It's not really that large. It was only 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. The building of the temple was obviously a massive project, but in terms of its dimensions, the temple wasn't that much bigger than an ordinary church, a church seating, say, about 250. It wouldn't have been that much bigger than the building that we meet in. It was not the case that the, uh, the, the, the temple itself was, was so much greater than the other places that had been built for the worship of false deities. For instance, the Temple of Diana in Ephesus was much, much larger. It was vast. It was one of the wonders of the world. It was 425 feet long and 225 feet wide. It would have dwarfed the size of the temple. And yet, we are reminded again and again as we read this that it is not, even though the temple was so grand and so beautiful, uh, so aromatic even, it uh, appealed to all of the senses. It was not, though, the temple itself that was important. It was the God who had promised to dwell with his people who was so important. And that temple was a visible reminder of his presence in the midst of Israel, of his commandments to Israel, and to the importance of his scheme of redemption. It was a reminder in their midst that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sin. You could not go to the temple. You could not hear the law being read on a regular basis. You could not see the sacrifice of the animals, the pouring out of the blood, and not recognize that this was a holy God that you were dealing with. Everything about the temple was supposed to emphasize that. And also, by reflection, the terrible nature of sin and what it would do, and how needful it was that we be redeemed. Now, 
the temple itself, as we read here, was a seven-year construction. Uh, and we are told exactly when it was that it was built. It was in the 480th year since the people of Israel had come out of Egypt. Up until that time, they had still been worshiping the Lord in tabernacles. The center of the worship, of course, was the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant that contained the the tablets of the testimony of the Lord, the Ten Commandments, a reminder of God's holiness. And we remember that there was that ritual, that yearly feast of Yom Kippur, when the blood was poured out upon the mercy seat to remind them of their need of atoning grace from the Lord. Uh, It was finished around 966 BC. The interesting thing is that puts the completion of the temple halfway between the exodus being brought out of Egypt and the exile being taken in to Babylon uh, before their release 70 years later. The temple itself was, of course, sited close to the old city of Jerusalem, but not directly in it. It was actually on the threshing floor of Aruana, bought by David in 2 Samuel 24, 24. It was sited on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, that, that mountain you remember that the Lord had directed Abraham to take his son Isaac to and sacrifice him. It was also very close, of course, to Calvary or Golgotha, the place where our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would be sacrificed for our sin. The area, unfortunately, of the temple is now marked. Uh, you can unfortunately know exactly where it was located because Now the Dome of the Rock, uh, the second holiest of the mosques in Islam, sits upon it uh, in Jerusalem. The structure of Solomon's temple was broken up into four main areas. The first was the main chamber of the house, which was a rectangle 90 feet long by 30 feet wide by 45 feet high. Uh, It faced east, the holy place faced east. The entire building was oriented that way. Um, And it had uh, also before it the second part, the vestibule, uh, vestibule rather, or entrance hall, which was attached to the eastern front of the chamber, which measured 30 feet wide by 15 feet deep. And then you had the three-storied side chambers, which were part of the walls of the north, uh, west, and south side. So it would have been uh, around the outsides of uh, of the temple there. Uh, those chambers served as storerooms and sleeping quarters for the priests. They needed to have some place where they could put all of the, uh, the various accoutrements that they needed. And also because many of them would be coming from cities all over Israel to minister in their time at the temple, they needed some place to stay and to sleep. And those, those uh, buildings on the outside formed the place where they would be. Also, architecturally, and it's just a a note, they also sustained the wall. One of the biggest problems in ancient architecture, this kind of thing fascinates me, I'll try not to bore you to tears, is uh, how do you keep everything um, standing when you want to build something that's a high structure? Building a low structure isn't that difficult. Uh, You can spread the load out, you can put beams in. If you want a one-story house with a flat roof, not that difficult to build. However, if you want to build a giant temple out of stone 45 feet high, there's enormous pressure, and the roof presses down upon it. 
The danger is, of course, that the walls will simply collapse. Those outer storerooms were like the flying buttresses in European cathedrals. What they did was they pressed everything in and kept the uh, roof up rather than falling upon the priests as they, uh, as they uh, worshipped the Lord. Uh, fourthly, there were large courtyards uh, that surrounded the entire structure. And it was in these courtyards, actually, that the people would worship and where the main uh, altar of sacrifice was located that the priests went up to. The temple itself, interestingly enough, is exactly twice the size of the tabernacle, twice the size of the tent of meeting. And it followed uh, roughly the dimensions of the, uh, the, the tent of meeting and its structure. You had the Holy of Holies, at the very center in the back, uh, it was the furthest in that you could go. And that was a perfect cube, 30 by 30 by 30. The uh, dimensions, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful mathematical precision. If, uh, I wish I loved math more. Uh, you, get to, you get to the Bible and you see again and again that the Lord loves math. He expresses things. So if you're math-oriented, good for you. That's uh, actually something that the Lord loves too. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand your language, but it's, um, a, uh, it, it's clearly there. Um, and the, so this, this perfect cube where the, uh, the, um, the Ark of the Covenant was located, uh, there was a reason that the Lord designed the dimensions the way he did. Now, one of the things that should have occurred to you at some point was within this building, there's no room inside the temple for worshipers. And that was done on purpose. It was built as the house of God, not the house of his people. It was the house in which the Lord dwelt in the midst of his people. And just as a palace was actually built for a king and his family and his retinue, so the house of the Lord in the midst of Jerusalem, it was not built for people to worship inside. One of the reasons for the difference in the dimension of the temples was, for instance, in the temple of Diana, the people would come inside. You remember, we read that uh, in the Philistine temples, the people worshipped inside. That was one of the reasons why Samson was able to, to kill so many Philistines. He pushed down the pillars and the roof caved in and the people who were on the roof and the people who were inside, they were crushed beneath the edifice. Well, the people of God, they actually worshipped outside. That was where the altars were. That was where the people gathered. And the, uh, um, you had the courtyards, therefore. That was where they accumulated outside the household of God. The temple itself was only entered by the official leaders of worship. Uh, the people worshipped God from the outside. So what is the temple designed to represent? Well, it is in one sense the palace of God. But more importantly, it is intended to represent the throne room of God. If I can, I'd like to take you to Isaiah chapter 6. This is a wonderful section. Obviously, this comes from the 700s when the, uh, uh, the temple had been built for over 200 years. But in Isaiah 6, we have a prophecy and a vision that shows us the throne room of God and how it resembles the temple itself. There we read, in the year that King Uzziah, this is Isaiah 6.1, that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with, the, uh, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And here we see in the next verse why it was that the worshipers of God could not come near. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. The people could not come near because they were a sinful people as God had been at the top of Mount Sinai and he had warned Moses, don't let the people come to the mountain lest I break out against them. I'm a holy God. They are an unholy people, a stiff-necked and stubborn people, a people who are afflicted by the fall, who are afflicted by sin. So we need to remember that the average Israelite his only knowledge of what was in the temple came through what he was taught because he never got to see it himself. He never went in. And as you got closer and you got more inside the temple, you'll notice that uh, if you were paying attention while we were reading about how it was built, it stepped up. As you went further in, you, you went to a different level and then another level. And when you got to the third level, the Holy of Holies in the rear of the temple, This was the holiest place, and there was only one person who could enter into that area once a year, and that was the high priest after he had gone through special sanctification. He wasn't even allowed to wear his regular priestly robes. There were special garments that he had to wear, and he had to take a specific sacrifice with him. When he was in there, it was said, this is a tradition, I'm not sure it's true, but they used to say that they put bells upon his garment so they could hear him moving around from the outside and they would tie a rope to his leg so if he died within the Holy of Holies he could be pulled out because they could not go in there. You'll read also that there were chains of gold that were put uh, outside the, uh, um, the door to the Holy of Holies. People get the idea that these were chains that were designed to block off access. Actually, these were chains that were designed to suspend the uh, veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the inner portions of the, uh, the temple. This was the veil that was torn, that was split from top to bottom when Jesus died, showing that now through Christ's sacrifice, we have access into the Holy of Holies, something that uh, a Jewish worshiper could not even have thought of. So... Regarding, uh, I just want to point out some things about the construction here, and then we'll get into the theological significance of the temple itself. First, regarding the silence of the building site, you remember uh, in 1 Kings 6 and then verse 7, we read in the temple when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. Now, (laughs) there was a Jewish... Um, uh, I, I've forgotten what the, uh, the name of the worm was. There was a, an ancient rabbinic tradition that, uh, that grew up um, uh, long after the temple. Was, uh, this was in, in the ADs, not even in the BCs, that Solomon had a magic worm that they used to touch to the stones and they would be suddenly perfectly finished. Uh, so that there would be no use of tools against them. That's not what's being said here. Everything was quarried so finely by the Gibbelites and the Sidonians in the quarries. Everything was, was made, cut to order before it was brought to the building site, and then it was shifted into position. It's interesting, I was watching a, a documentary. Um, many of the, the stones, the original foundation stones, uh, for the temple have been found in excavations. In digging, they've managed to get to the, the original giant blocks that the 
temple itself was built upon uh, so that it would be level. And they've said that these stones were so finely cut, you could not put not just a knife blade between them, you couldn't even fit a sheet of paper between these foundation stones. That's how finely quarried they were, how perfect uh, the preparations for the temple were before each part of it was brought to the construction site and put together again. Uh, it was a, a witness also to the holiness of God. This was supposed to be a place where there was as little noise, as little bustle, as little confusion as possible. You remember the prophet Habakkuk said, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all earth keep silence before him. The idea was there was, was to be reverence and awe in the, in, uh, before God, that we weren't supposed to be making a racket around him. And it shows the importance of silence in the work of the kingdom and also silence in the life of the believer. One of the things that I find we as believers do individually, I don't know about you, is we fill our lives with so much noise. I've said this before, what's the first thing we generally do when we get in the car? We immediately turn on noise, don't we? Either talk or or music. It's seldom the case that we be still and listen for the voice of God. It's seldom the case that we just meditate. One of the things that happened to, to my Mustang is that the radio no longer works. Uh, it's gone out twice now. I can't help but think God wants me to actually meditate a little instead of constantly uh, listening to books or, or listening to music and so on. That's a good practice to, to develop that, that thinking. When we turn the sound off, inevitably the wheels of our mind get running. And it should be the case that we think on the things of God, shouldn't it? That we're thinking about him, meditating upon his word, meditating upon his, his work and so on. And there should be in the worship of God. And this is something that's been lost, utterly lost in the modern age. It is there should be reverence and awe. There should be moments of silence when it comes to the worship of God. But do you notice when there's silence in the worship of God, people get uncomfortable? I mean, if I'd held that silence for a little longer, after a while, people's eyes would get very, is he having a stroke? (laughs) Something going, you know, does he see something we don't see? That kind of thing. It should be the case that we're able to be still, that we're able to be quiet before the Lord that we're able to to pray so we can hear and so on. Modern worship, it is so noisy. One of the things that has horrified me about about modern worship uh, is that there are now many churches, you'll walk into their vestibule and you'll see, the first time I saw it, I was like, do you guys have a shooting club here or something? Because there were, were, you know, the, the squeegees you put in your ear, the little orange ones and so on. They're like, no, that's for the worship. Your worship is so loud that people with tinnitus are going to be in pain. Do you think that's biblical? Really? I don't, I don't get that idea. Um, in Uganda, uh, one of the things that um, happened in, in the chapel preceding the one that I was supposed to speak at was I noticed that um, one of the habits is that either a, the keyboardist or the drummer actually will play while the person is talking to emphasize their points. And I noticed that when um, uh, the TBI uh, the principal was speaking the day before, the drummer would often <coughs> would, uh, would add, to emphasize one of his points. 
And I had this horror because I knew I was going to be preaching the next day that he was going to, I would make appointment here. You know, there are some things that do not require musical accompaniment. By God's grace, there was no musical accompaniment to my preaching. There, we don't need a soundtrack continually. We don't need to be distracted. Sometimes we just need to be able to be still, to listen, to concentrate, to think. I think so much of modern society is actually geared to stopping us from thinking. With the constant input, what was it, uh, what was the, the name of the book by Gene Veith? I think it's, uh, what is amusing ourselves to death. That wasn't uh, Gene Veith's. Neil Postman, wasn't it? Um, but it's true. With all the amusement that we fill our lives with, we are simply not hearing. We are not able to, to think. We are amusing ourselves to death. So in the midst of all of this building talk, one of the things, though, that we should notice is that our attention is arrested by communication from God to Solomon, actually, in verse 12. Verse 12. And there we read the... Uh, whoops, I'm in the wrong book. I need to go back to 1 Kings. 1 Kings 6 and verse 12. Concerning this temple which you are building, this is the Lord speaking to Solomon, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. You have here this massively important if-then statement. I remember when I was a kid, uh, long before computer games came out, you actually had to write your own computer games. I would buy magazines. I, I don't know if anybody is old enough uh, to remember this as well. You would buy magazines that had computer code in them. And you would sit down on your ZX81 or your, um, uh, your Amiga or whatever your, your terrible little computer was, which was really less powerful than the average handheld calculator today. And you would write in lines of code, and then you could watch these horrendously pixelated things going like this across your screen. And at the time, that was the height of technology, and you were amazed. And you could play you know, these incredibly boring games that took ages to program. But um, one of the, the heart of, of these were if-then statements. If something is true, then go do this. Okay? But if it's not true, then it's not going to happen. And it was one of the core ideas in programming. But notice what the Lord says here to Solomon. He says, if you walk in my statutes, then I will perform my word to you. One of the things, and many commentators have said, why on earth does this come in the middle of instructions about the building of the temple? Well, the idea is foundational. It's supposed to be here. What is the foundational idea? The foundational idea is that it's only when we are actually obeying the Lord. It's only when we are filled with faith and being faithful to him that our worship has any meaning. The building itself is not what's important. We remember that the church, the ecclesia, and in the ancient world, the kahal, the assembly, that was made up not of the building and its structures. It was made up of the people of God. You are the church, not the building. And the temple as well. The Lord did not need, as a king needed a palace, the Lord did not need a place in which to dwell amongst his people. In fact, he said to David before, I dwelt in tents. I'd never asked you for a house of cedar. 
but now it was being built. But the important thing they need to remember is that the building is not magical. It will not immediately give them blessings. Our religion can become very empty, very superstitious, very formalistic, very ritual. And in fact, the worship of the Jewish people did. So that when the Babylonians were attacking, they were determined that there was going to be no uh, possibility that Jerusalem would be taken. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these, they said. In other words, the temple is at the center of the city. The Lord is trapped in the midst of it. He will never allow it to be overtaken. But yet, we have here a reminder that faith is of critical importance. And without it, then it's just an empty box. What matters to the Lord is that you love him and that you show your love to him by keeping his commandments. However magnificent the temple was, it has no spiritual value unless the people devote themselves to him. I learned that lesson as a kid, and I didn't even realize it. I was raised, um, my, my parents were C of E in two different senses. Uh, C of E stands uh, for Church of England, uh, but they were also C and E. Christmas and Easter were the only uh, times where you could be certain that my, my family would be in church. But when we did go to church, it was generally, uh, it was Anglican churches, Episcopal churches, high churches. I spent a lot of time in cathedrals. I spent a lot of time uh, because my, my father loved to visit these cathedrals and so on. Uh, and, and Roman Catholic churches as well. And generally speaking, the architecture is, is of great importance. You have these giant stained glass windows. Uh, you have wide spaces, you have high ceilings. Everything is designed to focus the attention of the worshiper upwards. And the sound qualities are, are amazing. When you've got a giant choir singing, the, the, uh, the, the sound just echoes off the, the walls and the ceiling and so on. But even as a child, it struck me as having something of a tomb-like quality. And that wasn't helped by the fact that I knew, even as a kid, that I was walking over dead bodies buried beneath the church in many of these cathedrals. I, I don't know if you saw the, uh, the queen's, uh, not just her funeral, but her entombment. She was buried actually beneath Windsor Chapel. So you would go into these places, these, these cathedrals and so on, and there would be literally dead men's bones underneath the floor. But also, one of the things that I didn't realize at the time was that the worship was dead as well. It was an empty tomb. It was, in essence, a, a sarcophagus for former worship, a place where people had once worshipped in spirit and in truth, but no longer. Well, the Lord warns that's what the temple can become. It can become simply a tomb, a whitewashed tomb, where nothing of any great importance is going on. Also, remember this, the beauty of it. The beauty wasn't there simply to dazzle the eye. It was to teach people as well. The gold was supposed to remind people of heaven, obviously, but there were these things that were carved upon it. Uh, we have palm trees, open flowers, and so on. What were they there to do? Well, they were to remind people of the first temple. Now, you should pause for a moment and say, what do you mean remind people of the first temple? This was the first temple. Well, the first temple was actually Eden. That was where God met with Adam. Remember in the coolness of the day, before the fall, when they could, they could actually commune directly? 
And here we have this idea that through atonement, we can be returned to an Edenic state where we can actually enter into the presence of the Lord. And also the beauty reminds us of the beauty of holiness, the beauty of the Lord himself. There's so much ugly in our civilization and we're supposed to pretend it's, it's beautiful. I look at things and I'm supposed to think, oh, this is, it's not. It, it's ugly, it's, it's genuinely ugly. There's no aesthetic quality to it whatsoever. Well, not so with God. We are assured that the beauties that we will encounter in heaven will be beyond our conception. And the beauty of the temple must have been amazing. And the question that we would ask is, how can anyone be worthy of entering? Even the high priest, how could anyone come into the presence of God? Wouldn't everybody have that problem that... Isaiah lamented, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And I'm talking about the covenant people, God's people on earth, and we're all unclean. How is it we can enter into the presence of God and worship him? Well, if you look at Isaiah 6 again, starting with verse 6, we have the answer. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. There would be a purging for sin that would make us righteous enough to enter into the presence of a holy God, that would enrobe us with his perfect righteousness. All right, this is driving me crazy. What's going on outside? <laughs> it's all good. Okay, good. All right. Excellent. I just wanted to make sure that the Hindenburg wasn't crashing outside or that a jetliner had come down and we were gradually rescuing people. Wonderful. Okay. Nothing we need to pray about at this point? It's good. Okay. All right. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles then to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And specifically verse 10. Now, we saw the angel bringing that coal from the altar of sacrifice and pressing it to the lips of Isaiah to show that his sins had been purged away. In Hebrews, one of the things that the author of Hebrews is zealous to do is to tell his fellow Jews, these Jewish Christians who are being tempted to go back to synagogue worship, back to the worship of the temple, to show them how the temple was a picture pointing forward to the salvation that they really needed that would come through Jesus Christ. That they were themselves being built into a temple. He the head, they the living stones. And that only through worship of him was any of this really brought together. So in Hebrews 10.10, we read, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God. 
Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In the temple, we had a reminder of the holiness of God, but in the sacrifices that took place at the temple, it was a reminder of the atonement that was coming. The atonement for sins that alone can allow us to enter into the true holy of holies, the throne room of grace. When we stand before a holy God, we will not be able to plead our own righteousness any more than an ordinary Israelite could have crossed all the way from the courtyard, the outermost courtyard of the Gentiles, into the Holy of Holies freely in his own day. You and I cannot enter beyond the veil unless we have been washed in the blood of Christ. Unless we have his righteousness, then we are undone. We will come apart. We will be silent in that day, able to plead nothing and know that only righteous judgment can fall upon us because we are not a holy people by nature, are we? You all know your own hearts. You know that you were born into this world sinful. Those of you who are parents with children know you don't have to sit down and teach your class on sin to your little children. Now, Johnny, today we're going to hit lying. Tomorrow we're going to deal with selfishness and we'll emphasize that wonderful word, mine. And you've got to have the jerking motion where you take the toy. Mine. Can't have. And then being a little God. We'll talk about that as well, Johnny, and how the entire universe should serve your fallen will. We don't have to do that with our children because they are hardwired and programmed that way. You and I know this in our hearts is the seed of every particular sin. It's not something that comes from the outside in. It's something that comes, as Christ put it, from within the heart of a man. It bubbles out. And without cleansing from sin, a cleansing that reaches to the heart, a cleansing that only the Holy Spirit can do, not the cleansing of water, but the cleansing, the washing of water by the word that is the Holy Spirit within us. That's the only way that we can be cleansed of our sin. And only if we are given robes richer than the special robes that the priest would wear as he entered into the Holy of Holies, those special robes he only wore once a year, the finest linen. You and I need a linen even cleaner than that. We need the robes that Christ alone can give us, the wedding garment that will allow us to enter into the presence of our Father God. But here's the good news. If you have believed upon him, if you have trusted in him, then the coal has been pressed to your lips. The blood has washed away your sin. You are enrobed in the righteousness of Christ and have nothing to fear. There are so many Christians who are constantly on this treadmill thinking, I need to, to have assurance by my own works, by my own works, by my own works. And they fall further and further behind instead of trusting Christ, fleeing to him. You'll find no assurance if you trust in your own holiness, this side of glory. But if you trust in the perfect righteousness of Christ, you'll find all you need. I would encourage you to read at some point today the Sabbath meditation. It's a long one. I'm not going to include it in the sermon because I'd like you to, to read it by yourself and then meditate upon it. Think upon these things in silence. Think upon your need of Christ. If you don't have the righteousness that Phil Riken speaks of in this little paragraph here, then you know where to find it. There is only one place, and that is by going to Christ, falling at his feet, confessing your sins before him, and then asking for his salvation. 
We are all like the leper who came to Christ and said, Lord, if you are willing, I can be cleansed. And we know that if we come in faith, we will hear those words we need to hear so very badly. I am willing, be thou cleansed. I pray you've already done that. But if not, let's go before the Lord together now. God, our Father, I do pray for those in particular who have never really come to that conclusion, that dreadful conclusion that they are sinners who have no hope of entering into your presence save through the salvation that you freely and mercifully offer. But I pray this day that they will bow before you and their tongues would confess that Jesus is Lord and that they would seek the mercy that only he can give. May we all like that woman who cried and washed the Lord's feet with her tears. May we hear those words, woman, your sins are forgiven. Man, your sins are forgiven. Lord, may it be the case that we know that our sins are forgiven, not because of anything we've done, but because of the perfect, complete work of Jesus that was prefigured in the temple, pointed forward to. Oh Lord, may it be that we're part of that temple made with living stones. May we be part of his gracious body.